Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open it to Jude. This morning we will be studying verse 5 to 7, but I would like to read from verse 1. Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned the proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Lord, we come before you asking for grace to know your word. Uh, Lord, be with us that as we study your word, that our hearts for you grow and our sensitivity towards sin increase as well. Lord, may we love you and to cherish you after studying your word. In son's name I pray, amen. Growing up, I love reading old dystopian novels. Books like Animal Farm or Fahrenheit 451 or Brave New World. I love these books uh, because they're considered a masterpiece, not by my standard, but even by secular standards. They're considered a masterpiece because of the subtle implications that they have on man. There's a commentary that these different types of writers have on, on the nature of man through these books. Not only that, but it also attempts to show the world what the world may be like several decades down the line. Uh, when books like 1984 was written, it was written before there was a thing called Twitter. Yet in that book, it talks about this thing called Newspeak, where people uh, control the society based on a limited amount of languages they can use. This was way before there was these things as fake news, but yet that book talked about it. Books like Fahrenheit 451 
talked about how people would entertain themselves, amuse themselves to death, that because of entertainment that they are not aware of their surroundings. In fact, there's a scene in that book where a person puts on these things like seashells, and that was there before headphones were even invented. And it is profoundly insightful that these authors have on the human condition. In recent years, there has been a surge and an increase of productions of these type of dystopian genre. Uh, if you look at the charts in terms of books and movies and different literature, you, you'll notice that these are the ones that dominate the charts. Now, why does our culture in this modern day love this genre? What is it about this genre that's so alluring and amusing to our young readers? An article by Elisa Nodwerney for NPR tried to answer this question. And she spent a, a whole night in a library with a bunch of teenagers. It's kind of like our, this past week in our high school has had a sleepover. It's kind of like that. But imagine in the library. Uh, but she reported that these teens were saying, uh, why do you like these books? And one of the teens responded by saying, oh, the whole world is against me. The whole world is so messed up. She writes that these teens seem to identify with the protagonists. She observes that these teens themselves are, are characters that are in a strange land. They look at the current state of America and they think, this is a weird, strange world. They go to their class and think, this is a strange place. The rules that are imposed on them, they don't understand. And everything in their life makes it feel as though they have no power. One expert writes, that uh, there's even a disproportionate number of dystopian versus, versus utopian books. Utopian books are, are a book that talks about like, the society being a good place, where dystopian shows the world being a broken place. That there's a disproportionate amount in our recent years. I think that the reason why young readers are drawn to these books is because these people don't understand why the world it is the way it is. So the only way they can escape the world that they are in currently is to rebel against it. They look at the world, and they don't understand why the structure is there. And they don't want to conform to it, so the thing that they do is to rebel against it. Most of these books start out with the protagonist not knowing where they're at, and then finding a way to rebel and overthrow the established government. It's no surprise, then, that our culture as a whole loves to rebel are slowly becoming more and more rebellious. It's almost like an echo chamber. They, 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 in their hearts, they want to rebel. They get taught in entertainment to rebel, and then they act it out. Rebellion, sadly, is in vogue. Rebellion, although it is socially accepted, is not new. And we know as Christians that rebellion has began since the garden. This is something that we've talked about as a theme throughout studying through the book of Jude, that rebellion and, and sin has began in the garden. And rebellion will end at one point, but until every knee bows, until Christ reigns, there's always going to be a struggle to obey. And by God's grace, as Christians, we can obey God's word. But I think because our culture is so accepting of rebellion that we actually forget that rebellion is a grave sin. All rebellion is an attempt to overthrow what God has established. No matter what type of rebellion against God, the result is the same. 
If you ever wonder why someone falls away from the faith, if you ever wonder why someone is an apostate, it is because they want to rebel against God. All rebellion can be summed up in three types of sin, and it's in your bulletins. It's these three sins, unbelief, abandonment, and indulgence. These are the three types of sin that can lead anyone into apostasy. If they keep dwelling and, and, uh, and doing these sins, they will fall away. Jude in this passage shows three types of sin that can lead someone to apostasy. And if it's you or someone you know is struggling with the faith, understand it, that they are struggling with one of these three sins. They're not struggling with God's word, but they're struggling with believing in God's word. They're struggling in abandoning God's word. They, they have, and they're struggling with indulging in their, in their own sin, which is rejecting God's word. It has nothing to do with God's word. God's word is pure. Now, the question has come is, how can this be? Early on when we read and we, in our very first sermon of the series, there's the phrase, kept for Jesus Christ. How can someone who's kept in Jesus Christ fall away from the faith? I, rem- I imagine my college professor reading this and thinking, see contradictions in the Bible. But what is apostasy? The word apostasy means to desert, to walk away, to abandon. So how can a person fall away from the faith when God gives us assurance? Well, understand that the Bible does teach that you have absolute assurance, that you can never be taken away from God. If you are a genuine follower of Christ, you will make it until the end. Those who strive to live for Christ will make it to the end. Apostasy is just a matter of perspective. In reality, people who leave the faith, it's only perspective from our point of view. Because in God's eyes, he already knows who are in his fold. He already knows who the elect are. He knows his sheep. This is why in 1 John tells us that those who walk away from the faith never were really in the faith to begin with. These apostates, these false Christians will creep into the church And then over time, their true colors show, and then they reveal that they were never saved to begin with. And Jude, in this portion here, from verse 5 to 7, wants to show us and wants to help us identify those who are an apostate. And for us to do some self-reflection, if you yourself is is struggling with the faith, this is a a mirror to your own soul. If you want to keep yourself from apostasy, you must be mindful of these three sins in your heart. The sin of unbelief, the sin of abandonment, and the sin of indulgence. That's going to be our outline this, uh, this morning. The first one is the sin of unbelief. Look at verse 5. Now, now, it's for, now it's to point back to what he said in verse 4, that certain false teachers crept into the church and has indulged in their sin. They have abused the grace of God into licentiousness, and they eventually deny Jesus as Lord and Master. These false teachers were teaching that, and some people followed them. And Jude here wants to give them an example of those who fall away. The results of those who fall away, he wants to give an example of that. Jude now is setting his attention on those false teachers and those who are contemplating following these false teachers. Jude is reminding them of what they already know. Look at verse 5. For now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all. Judas complimenting them and reassuring them that the truth that they already know is still relevant. The truth that they know, the Old Testament, all the things that they've taught from the apostles, everything that they know is still applicable to them. 
The things that they've heard, it still applies to them. The things that, that they know still applies to them and is still relevant to them today. And it's relevant for us as well. Notice that Judah's reminding them. That's the role of the leader or the pastor. It's to constantly remind the flock of truth. Biblical teaching always seeks to remind people of God's word. Romans 15, 15. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again. 1 Corinthians 4, 17. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ. 2 Peter 3, 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. The pastor's responsibility is to remind them of truth or to expand their mind on God's truth. That's really the two things that we do. When you come, you either are a young believer and you're learning new things about God's word or we're reminding you of something that you already know. Failure to do one of the two is a, is a question on their qualification as leaders. And we need to remind people of God's word. I'm going to do a little test. I think after this message, you're going to have this fellowship at lunch with one another, and you're going to say, that was a great reminder. And so I'm going to test it. Like, you don't have to, show it to do it. But to, like, I, I, I bet that most of you are going to say that because you already know some of these truths, and you're being reminded of it. And if you're not reminded, that's, this is something new, which expands on what God's word has to say. We, when we meet to worship God, we meet not only because we like to sing, although that's great. We don't meet because we want to fellowship, although those are great as well. But we meet because we want to be reminded of God's word. Let me ask you this. What was the last thing that you read in scripture? Aside from this passage. Aside from today, what was the last thing that you read in scripture? And did you apply it to your life? What about the last sermon? What about Friday? What was the last thing that you heard or preached? And did you remember, do you remember it? And are you applying it? Now, don't answer this, but do you remember what you learned last week, a week ago? Do you remember what you learned? This is a motif, actually, if you, in Scripture. If you read through the, the whole Bible from the beginning to end, you'll notice that this is a pattern. This is a, something that's recurring over and over again, that God gives instruction, and man forgets. God gives them instruction again, and man forgets. And God gives them again instruction, and man forgets. This is a cycle that constantly happens. And for all of us, the reason why that is because we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world, so we are prone to forget God's word, and we must be reminded of God's word. Due to our fallen nature, we forget, which is why we need to constantly be reminded and be taught again, over and over again, God's word. Yet the worst side effect of forgetting God's word is that we fall into sin. We need to be reminded of God's word so that when we can be guarded from sin. We must prioritize God's word in our lives. We have to prioritize, God, we have to prioritize learning God's word in our life. It is not enough to just only listen to one sermon on Sunday or two sermons on Sunday. We have to do it regularly. We need to study God's word and not just have it intellectually in our minds, but we need to apply it. We have to have God's word latch on into our hearts. We need God's word to stick into our heart. We need to treasure God's word so that we do not sin against him. All sin happened because in those moments, we forget God's words. And we want to go from learning God's word to hiding it into our own hearts. Psalm 119 verse 11 
psalmist writes, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And Jude wants to remind them so that they not only won't forget God's word, but that they will not that they won't stop believing God's words. That's the sad reality. If you, stop, if, you st- if you stray from God's word long enough, eventually you'll stop believing in God's word. you stop believing in its power in, in your life. And yet these false teachers, that's what they're doing, try to cast doubt to those who are unsuspecting, those who forgot God's word. Jude wants to re- reinforce them of the knowledge that's in their minds. Look at the example that Jude uses to remind them to remember God. And the... And, Middle verse 5, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Jude summarizes very quickly in this one verse what happened in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. And Jude himself knows the Old Testament. It is his heritage. It is part of his history. And side note, I do want to say that Jude believed the Old Testament to be true. He saw it historical. He saw these things as actually actual events. He doesn't argue. He just assumes that you know that God's word is true. He doesn't try to figure out, oh, do we believe in the, in the scrolls and the fragments? No, he believes that the Old Testament is true. He recounts the Old Testament as history, and he's using it as an example in our life to stay in the faith, to remember, to, to not fall into unbelief. Notice that Jude describes the Jews here as a people, Not God's people, not the people of God, not the people. It's just a general group of people. God rescued them because of his loving kindness, but they did not love God back. God delivered them. He heard their prayers. He saw their pain, and he delivered them, and they did not love him back. And it's evident by their unbelief. God demonstrated his power, his supernatural acts uh, through all over Egypt, his control over nature, not only parting the Red Sea, but everything that he's done, from the plagues, through the Passover, and yet in Exodus 15:22, after the Red Sea, it tells us that three days after the Red Sea that they began to complain and doubt God. Three days after the Red Sea, which was the culmination of the deliverance of, from Egypt, they complained and they forgot God. They saw all of the supernatural acts and they did not remember God's provision. They saw all the plagues. They had the Passover to remember God's deliverance. They saw all the parting Red Sea. You know, I googled how, how far the Red Sea is. It's pretty long. You know, I think in the movies that we see, it's just kind of like, okay, it happens and they run straight through and it takes like 30 seconds. It's like a sprint. That's not the case. It's like going from San Francisco all the way to Oakland and walking. It's like seeing that parting, that, that whole sea just parting. And then as, you, as you and a cold thousands and thousands of your people walking through and you see the fishes on the side of the wall. You see some fish probably died in the middle of the road and they're just still walking. They see this, this huge chasm in the Red Sea. They see all the supernatural acts. They turn back and they see the Egyptians confused uh, because God made them confused. They were, they were, they were close by. They were, they were catching up. But God confused them so that they couldn't catch up. And when, and when the last Israelite went through and then the, the, armies, the Egyptian army went through, they saw it close. And yet three days after that, they forgot what God has done for them and they started not believing in him. Three days 
If you add up all the time that the plague happened and all the passive, all the supernatural acts, it adds up to more than three days. But yet in those three days, even though God has provided so much for them, they forgot. Now before we scoff or be tempted to think that we are better, just remember that we, are at, that we have something that's even better than the supernatural acts of God. We have God's word. 2 Peter 1.9 tells us we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day's dawn and the morning star arises in your heart. Peter is saying that we have something even better than all the supernatural acts that the Israelites had in Egypt. Peter is saying that we have something that shines brighter than the fire that the Israelites had in the dark, and we have something that produced even greater cover than what the Israelites had in the wilderness. We have something better. We have God's word. And every time we encounter God's word, whether it's in our own quiet time or corporately as a church, we are encountering the supernatural God. God has preserved his word. Every single word is preserved. Every single word is supernaturally breathed out by God and is protected by God. Not one word will go unfulfilled. That's the supernatural act of God's, God's word. When we see it, this is, this is God's miracle in preserving his word. It's greater than all the miracles that's shown in the past because it's constant until God fulfills everything. This word will always be here and we have it. We can be just as wicked, or if not even more wicked, than the Israelites of old. We have the entire canon of scripture. We know how the story ends. The Israelites, when they were crossing the Red Sea, they didn't know what's going to happen on the other side. We do. But yet, even in spite of that entire narrative, we forget God. The issue has never been about the evidence or the clarity of scripture, but unbelief in our own hearts. We don't believe or those who are struggling with faith, they don't believe that the, the God of Scripture is the God of the universe, that he is the one true God. The issue is never about God revealing himself, but rather it's our own heart. I have seen so many people, I've heard so many arguments or people will say, if I just saw God, then I would believe. If God just come out of the sky, I would believe. I know definitively that that's not true. How do I know? Because the scripture says so. In Revelation, when Christ returns, there's still people that are hiding. There's still people that know that God is real and, and know that all, the, the, all of the, the wrath that's happening is from God, and they chose to hide from God. Instead of turning from their sin and trusting in God, they chose to run from the Lord. And I know because when Jesus was around, there were the Pharisees that saw Christ. He saw him do all the miracles, and they still did not believe. And in the Old Testament, they, the, the, the God of the Old Testament just gave them all these miracles, and they did not believe. How many of you today are rejecting God's word? Your issue is not with Scripture, but with unbelief. Yet God has promised hope that even though you have a whole bunch of doubts that all you need is a mustard seed-like faith. It doesn't require much for you to enter into the kingdom. It doesn't require much for you to enter through the narrow gate. All you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and he died for your sins. And if you believe in that, you turn from your sin, you trust in him, you can be saved. It's just a mustard seed-like faith. And for you who are beginning to drift the issue, again, has nothing to do with God's word or its clarity. 
Your unbelief is that God is going to not fulfill what God's word has to do. Your unbelief in God does not negate the realities of scripture. God will destroy you for your sin and for your unbelief. Notice that at the end of verse 5, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Whatever the reason, if you're feeling the tug of war in your heart, if you're feeling the drift to, uh, to leave the faith, you will be destroyed for your unbelief. But yet, again, God is merciful. If you ask him, he will help you. Mark 9, 24. That's a famous verse. Like, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. This is a great prayer. It's a great plea because they acknowledge in a humble heart that you need God to give you the faith that you need to persevere. And if that is your struggle, I plead with you to pray to God. Pray that he will give you faith and he promises that he will help you. Not only is the sin of unbelief a sin that leads to apostasy, but second, the sin of abandonment. The sin of abandonment. Look at verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. These angels are fallen angels, demons. They chose not to keep God's word. They chose to go about and, 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 and pass the, the boundaries that God has set for them. This word did not keep is the same word as the last word. They, they did not believe. They, chose, they knew God's word and they chose not to believe. They chose to abandon what God has told them to stay, to, to, to stay. They chose not to keep the position that God gave them and abandon their domain. God have gave them a certain restrictions and they chose not to follow it. And these angels transgressed the proper bounds. Now, what is this referring to? What is you talking about? Turn over to Genesis 6. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 1, you know the creation. God created the heavens and the earth and everything on it, every living thing. Genesis 2, creates, he recaps the creation of man. Genesis 3, the fall of man, uh, the temptation and then the fall of man, and God's promise of a deliverance. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, the, the, the sacrifice that's from faith and a sacrifice by works. And then Genesis 5 talks about this genealogy from Adam all the way until Noah. And when we get to Genesis 6, Let's just read Genesis 6, uh, verse 1 to 4. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. And the sons of God, this, this word here, sons of God, these are fallen angels. These are the ones that have, that, that have rejected God and are, 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 and are rebelling against him. And notice that these demons saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then God said, my spirit shall not strive with men forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. They were mighty men who serve, who were of old, men of renown. In verse 5, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Since fallen angels are creatures and they don't have and they're not able to reproduce, they possessed these humans 
to go and, have, and commit sexual sin. These angels or creatures that lusted after humans. Understand that when we think of angels, sometimes we think of just people with wings, right? Like fat babies in the clouds singing a harp or playing a harp. That's like our perception of what angels are. But they're not people. They're creatures. They're just like any other animal. They're creatures. Although they can look like a man, they, can, they have powers to make themselves seem like the appearance of someone beautiful. They are only creatures. And yet these creatures lusted after humans. They possessed men to fulfill their own lust. This is an abomination to God because God commands that the only people that can procreate are their own kind and the opposite kind. Meaning is, if you're human, you, produce, you can only procreate with the opposite gender in the context of marriage. These demons want to crossbreed with humans. And these demons cross the proper abode by committing sexual acts with people. And these things were an abomination to the Lord. Now what's worse than the physical act is the motive behind it. Why did the devil do this? Why did the devil instruct a whole bunch of uh, demons to go and do this, to possess humans and have sex with them? Well, it's because he wanted to prevent the Messiah from coming. Remember Genesis 3. God made a promise to Adam even, even in front of the serpent that there would be one person that was going to come and he's going to crush the head of Satan. And the devil's scheme is that, okay, if I could get them all to kill themselves, if I, could, if I could influence all of them to go and kill themselves, the Messiah would not come. Notice in Genesis 6, uh, verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh corrupted their own way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, then this is where Noah comes in. This is, God told them early on in verse 1, that the, in verse 3, that there's going to be 120 years. And he's going to wipe them all out. God promised that he will raise a means for sin to become abolished. And this is where Noah enters into the picture. In Genesis 5, Noah is known as 500 years, and right after the ark is finished, he's 600 years old. So what, why is that significant? That means it took Noah 100 years to build the ark. So why is that, why is that significant? Who cares if it took over 100 years? These demonically inspired people had 100 years to repent. Even though these people were taught to be violent, they had 100 years to turn from the sin and, and, and enter into the ark. They had 100 years to repent, and they did not repent. God gave them 100 years, and they did not repent even once. This, constantly, this constant rebellion went on for 100 years. The people on earth continually rebelled, and they taught the next generation to not follow God, to do whatever was right in their own eyes. They had 100 years to repent, and they used up all 100 years to reject God and did not turn from their sins. All of them rejected. And how do we know this? Because when the ark was completed, only Noah and his family entered into the ark. Every single one of them was destroyed. Every single one of the people that were possessed and who chose not to believe in God were destroyed. I'm imagining when Noah was building the ark during those 100 years that he and his families, every time they were hammering the ark together, when they're piecing everything together, when they added the doors, when they added the stable, they were being mocked at. People looked at them and scoffed and said, where's that judgment that you're talking about? Where's, that God's, where's God's judgment? They were taunting Noah. They were taunting his family they were, as they were reading the blueprints, as they were trying to follow God's instruction. These people did not believe. 
For 100 years, they saw Noah's family. They saw that salvation was right in front of them, and they did not, they did not believe, even though salvation was right in front of them. How about you today? How many times have you heard that you must turn and repent and turn to Christ, and you did not believe? How many minutes have you spent denying God when someone has warned you of the coming judgment? How many hours did you spend making excuses to not turn from your sin and to place your faith in Jesus? How many years has it been? How many years have you wasted denying Christ when salvation is right in front of you? Just like the people who failed to make it on the ark, even though they were warned and they died for it, so it is for you if you deny Jesus today. Death will come, and hell will come for those who has not received Christ as Lord. And if that is you today, I plead with you like every other week, every other preacher that comes up, we pray and we plead that you repent from your sin. Destruction will come, especially those who chose to abandon God's command. Let's go back to Jude. Notice at the end of verse 6, he has kept eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. These demons are kept, they're chained, and they're reserved for the great judgment. We know that in Revelation that all of these false teachers, all of these demons, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. And these demons are chained until then. So what can we learn from this? What can we learn? How do we apply this into our life? Understand that you do not abandon the proper abode that God has assigned with his word. Do not abandon the proper abode that God has assigned with his word. Jude uses this as an example to warn the church about what the false teachers are doing is no different from what the angel has done in the past. These false teachers are trying to expand the moral boundaries. These false teachers try to add things to God's word. They try to do the things that God has told them not to do. These false teachers want the church to abandon what God has deemed proper, what God claims that's holy, we need to see it that way as well. The demons did not see it that way. They wanted to transgress God's word. Just like the demons and all of its followers, definite destruction, so too are the false teachers and all of its followers. Apostasy happens when people add or change scripture. And oftentimes they try to add things that are catering to their own flesh. Think about people who are okay with every other parts of the Bible except when it comes to sin. They're trying to change what God has said don't do. The seed of apostasy grows on the soil of lies. And if you today think you can follow God according to your own terms, don't be surprised that on the day of judgment that he cast you out because you were never his to, be, to, to begin with. You're worshiping a God of your own making, not the God of Scripture. God's attribute doesn't change, and neither does his word. And the only thing that needs to change is you. Not only is the sin of unbelief and the sin of abandonment sins that lead to apostasy, 
But lastly, the sin of indulgence. Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing punishment for eternal, of eternal fire. This phrase, just as, is just another example. Something that they already know. They, they know about Sodom and Gomorrah. Even our modern day culture knows that. That's like the most notorious city in the Bible. Uh, it's probably one of the, 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 the places that people think about. You know, when I was in LA, people said that, that San Francisco is the modern day Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like a term that we use to describe how debauched the, the, the area is. It's to show that this, that particular place is, is known for their sexual deviancy. And notice that it was not just Sodom and Gomorrah, but also the cities around it. That means that Sodom, was, Sodom and Gomorrah were, were almost like the capital. They influenced the places around them. Every other city looked to them and they say, okay, we're going to do just like what they're doing. When people talk about how San Francisco is like Sodom, it's, in a sense, it's true because of the influence that the city has on the rest of America. The cities around it become succumb to what this city does. So there's no surprise here. That's, this is what uh, Jude is trying to make them remember, that they, Sodom and Gomorrah, was destroyed. And when Jude wrote this, it's supposed to evoke a certain image in their minds, just like it does for us. It's supposed to remind them what the, of what they would be if they follow these false teachers, just like Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, so would those who follow after a pattern of sexual deviancy. These false teachers indulged and made others indulge in sexual sin. Notice that this word strange flesh, it's, it's not authorized or abnormal. It's liberal, my liberal friends and even people that I've talked to growing up that are liberals, they claim that Sodom and Gomorrah is not about homosexuality, it's not about sexual sin, it's about not being hospitable. Clearly, they did not read Jude. They did not read this verse. Because this verse, Jude is saying that they indulged in sexual sin. These people went after not, not only sex between people, but with other creatures. It's a switch. Genesis 6, these fallen demons were lusting after men. And when you remember Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the, the people there were lusting after angels. It was a reverse. And that tells us that you don't need to be demonically possessed to sin. You are born with a natural inclination to sin. Even if you're not influenced by them, you will want to sin because of how wretched you're born with a sinful nature. These sinners back then indulge in their sin, and what is the end game is they end up killing them. They were destroyed. Judas trying to warn them that those false teachers will try to lure you away with sexual sin. A few weeks ago, Kelly and I went to Barnes & Noble, and um, she went to the art section and was looking at all these different artsy stuff. And uh, I was standing near, it was like the magazine section, then there was a bench, and I was going to sit down. On the bench, there was this Time magazine on serial killers. I'm not drawn to serial killers, I'm just saying that I was just there, okay? I, was just, I just picked it up, <laughs> and it was like, I was just reading it. And it was a special on mass cultic serial killers, like people that, that tried to use religion to, kill, to, to start mass murders. And one of the most notorious serial killers is Charles Manson. He led a group of people to go and commit a killing spree. And what was 
fascinating in terms of the observation that the, these writers, this, this, um, this, the person who wrote this article, he claimed that at the time, Charles Manson, aside from just using the Bible and calling himself the Messiah, he used the greatest currency at the time. The greatest currency in the 60s and 70s was sex. He tried to use that he tried to sell that to people so that they will do his bidding in killing other people. Sexual sin is a powerful manipulator. And Jude is warning them and is warning us to, today to stay away from those false teachers that promote sexual sin. These false teachers will try to use sex to control you and make your heart turn away from God. And if you don't believe that, think about Solomon in 1 Kings 11. He had a thousand wives. And what was the end result of that? What is the punishment of that? What happened is his heart was turned away from the Lord. His heart left the, the faith. He, did not, he no longer saw God the way that he, told, that, he, that he was supposed to. And God warned him. God warned him that you, shouldn't, you cannot marry these foreign women because they will turn your heart away from me. And that is exactly what happened. Yet you look at here, Jude ends this passage with a warning that Sodom and Gomorrah, these are, an, are exhibited as an example in undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Although Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed physically with fire, what's worse was came, what came after it, that they would suffer eternal wrath of God. They would be burning forever. My question for us this morning is this, are we indulging in sexual sin the burning lust in your heart for, for sexual sin, if you succumb to it, if you succumb to its passions, they will lead you to, 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 to burning hell. So, Sodom and Gomorrah was a warning for us to remain pure. Sodom and Gomorrah teaches us that we need to remain pure. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5 reads this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who did not know God. Jude's warning for them and to us today is this, abstain from sexual sin, abstain from it, or you will perish. People who fall away from the faith fall because they are either unbelieving, they abandon, or they abandon the faith, or to abandon God's proper abode in his word, or they indulge in sexual sin. Each of these sins, God has warned them. Look at verse 5 at the very end. They subsequently destroyed them. This isn't saying that you become annihilated, but that you will be destroyed and you endure God's wrath. Verse 6, he has kept an eternal bond under darkness for the judgment of the great day. There is a judgment coming for those who abandon his word. And verse 7, that that Sodom and Gomorrah was an example undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. It's an ongoing punishment that you will experience if you continue following in these types of sin. Sin, although it is pleasurable for a moment, only leaves the misery. It brings you nothing but misery at the end. And people have to fight to keep themselves from unbelieving. They have to fight from abandoning the faith, abandoning God's word, and they have to fight to not indulge in any sexual sin. Because if you continue doing these sins, if you continue casting and thinking about leaving the faith, your heart will be hardened and you will leave the faith. If you are constantly thinking about doing what's right in your own eyes and abandoning God's word, you will eventually leave the faith. 
And if you continue indulging in sexual sin, you will eventually leave the faith because you find something more desirable than God. And hope that if there is any of you stuck in any of these sins, that you confess to the Lord and ask him to give you grace to fight these sins. Because it is a warning for us that if you continue following these types of sin, that you will lead, that your life will be thrown and casted into the fire. It's a warning for us to put off sin and to put on Christ. For those who are thinking about leaving the faith, this could be one of those moments where it's like, this is the last Sunday I'm going to go to SFBC. This is the last sermon I'm going to hear. And after this, I'm done. My plead with you is to don't do it. The end is not good for you. The end is that if you leave Christ, you will see Christ, but he will punish you for your sin. You will endure his wrath. Just because you walk away from God's grace does not mean that you walk away from his wrath. And if that is you today, if you're thinking about leaving the faith, don't do it. There is nothing good at the end of this road for you. And for those who are not believers, and you're so close of receiving Christ, you're thinking, maybe not today. My plea with you also is to don't do it. Repent. Turn from your sins. Place your faith in Christ. I don't even know what's personally worse. Knowing salvation and then leaving it, or being so close to salvation and not receiving it. Turn from your sins. Trust in the Lord. This morning, uh, we, were, we sang a song, Come Thou Fount, by Robert Robinson. This is a notorious hymn because of this one line in that hymn. Some of you guys even know what I'm talking about. It's this line. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And the irony of that statement, the irony of him writing that, is that he himself did abandon the faith. He wrote this hymn pleading, and this is a great song, but in the end, he walked away. One day he was walking around, he heard a lady, he was, he was actually riding his horse, and he heard a lady sing this song. He sang, she sang this part, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And Robert Robinson looked at her and said, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had, if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. Robert Robinson left, even though he wrote this magnificent hymn to plead to stay in the faith. And I hope that does not happen to any of you this morning. That you do not abandon Christ for anything else. Understand that Christ is the greatest. He is the one that could give you true happiness. There's nothing in this world that can offer that. They might lie to you and give you these false assumptions, but Christ is better and he is more than willing to forgive you if you trust in him today. Don't be like the many apostates that, that left the faith over sexual sin, over abandoning God's word, over indulging or unbelief. Turn from those things and go to our Heavenly Father who will give you eternal life. Let's pray.
merciful Father, I ask that you do help us stay in the narrow path where we are prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God that we love. But yet, please, Lord, help us stay on the narrow path. I beg you to help us as we try to live a way that's pleasing to you. Lord, there are so many temptations in the world, so many things that are trying to lure us away from you. But yet I ask that you allow us to see how magnificent and how beautiful you are, that you are the greatest, that you're better than anything that this world has to offer. Keep us close to you, Lord. Give us the ability to flee and fight sin. And Lord, for those who are thinking about straying and to leave the faith, I pray, Lord, that you can convict their hearts, show them how great you are. And those among us who are close to salvation, I pray, Lord, that you can push them to guide their heart to you, help them with their unbelief, help us with our unbelief as well. Keep us in the bounds of your word. Allow us to never indulge in any sin. We need your spirit to work in our hearts, and we trust in the promise of deliverance from all temptation. Help us, Lord, because we are so easily prone to wander. In your matchless son's name, amen.